as we seek to introduce All right, good morning. I just want you to know, you know, when I was praying and stuff and I had you stand that whole time, I just missed the cue. I should have had you sit. I don't have authority issues, so I, I'm not making you stand the entire time I talk. I did a wedding once and I, uh, I forgot to have him sit after, you know, the, the bride comes down with the father and you're supposed to say, please be seated. Well, I forgot and I was halfway through my sermon and I looked up and they're all standing there and I just thought, I do quick weddings. I'm just going to have them stand the whole time. So you kind of experience the same thing. Afterwards, the guy I did it for was an army ranger, and he's like, I like that. It was like they were respecting me. I thought, I thought, you're right. They should respect you. And I want to say, too, this is not a part of my sermon, but if I was an army ranger, I would get the tattoo. That's the only tattoo I would ever want, but I would get the tattoo. That is awesome. Like A-team. All right. We're in the fourth week of our series entitled Boundaries, in which we are looking at this book. Uh, by, it's called Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. It's a, it's a topic that I deal with really often in the counseling room. And so we're not doing this series because I think this is more important than the Bible. The concepts from this come from the Bible. But I wanted to take some time, in fact, 11 weeks, and we're going to work through what it looks like to put proper boundaries in our lives because so many of us struggle with boundary issues. And so we're week four. I'm just going to give you a quick recap. Week one, we looked at the first three weeks were really introduction. Week one was what is a boundary? And a boundary is nothing more than a relational, invisible fence that defines what is and what is not your responsibility. What is and what is not your responsibility. So it kind of dictates and helps you to be able to say no to the things you should say no to, to say yes to the things you should say yes to. Like any good fence, that is its role to keep the bad things out, to keep the good things in. Week two, we looked at boundary problems and how they develop. And we saw that the bottom line is boundary problems develop when we lack unconditional love. And we've seen this in relationships over and over and over where somebody has some kind of emotional lack. It may be security, it may be acceptance, approval, and they're going to somebody else to get it. But as, and as, soon as, as long as that works well, where the other person is giving them security, acceptance, approval, intimacy, whatever they're lacking, things go great. But as soon as it, they are not providing those things, we have issues. But we saw in week two that problems develop because we are insecure and we lack unconditional love. And we saw that Christianity gives us a unique perspective on unconditional love. For Paul says in Romans 5, 6, which is a really fascinating verse, for Christ died for us while we were still ungodly. This means that God didn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He's not like Santa Claus where he gets stronger when we worship him and he diminishes when we don't. He doesn't need us. We needed him. And so he acted when we could not act for ourselves. And he loved us. And for those of us who experience his love, it allows us to have relational uh, health in a way that someone who hasn't experienced unconditional love cannot. Obviously, the people who do not know Jesus, not all of them walk around as hot messes where their whole life is a mess. They've got some relationships where they have gained this kind of unconditional love. It's not as strong as the unconditional love of God, but we all go around to certain degrees of healthiness and unhealthiness. And then last week, we looked at uh, boundary laws and boundary myths. We looked at four of each. I'm not going to recap those. You can listen to those online if you would like. But the bottom line is, we, at times, try to ignore laws, which are undeniable facts, and we believe myths, 
which are widely held false beliefs. And as long as we go against laws and believe myths, we will always be in trouble. But those first three weeks were really a groundwork for setting what we want to do these next seven weeks. And it's going to be seven weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to apply the principles that we looked at in those first three to various parts of our relationships that each of us have. Some may not have some of them, but we all have these things, at least in part. And here's what we're going to be doing over the next seven weeks. Starting with today, we're going to be looking at boundaries in your family. Next week, boundaries in your friends, followed by boundaries with your spouse, boundaries with your children, boundaries with your work, boundaries with yourself, and even boundaries with your God. So over the next seven weeks, we will be applying the principles of boundaries to those relationships, areas that we all struggle with, and uh, we're going to be talking about it and have a lot of fun. But this week, we're going to be looking at boundaries, in your family. Uh, and the, I just want to give you my big idea right off the top of the sermon, and then I'm just going to go through and develop it as we spend our time together. But the bottom line is this, boundary, families without boundaries are dysfunctional families. Families without boundaries are dysfunctional families. And I'm not going to have that be my tagline for every single sermon because I could do that. You know, friends without boundaries are dysfunctional friends, spouses. I'm not going to do that. But off the top, families without boundaries are dysfunctional. And we all have these times in our lives, and we, you know, if we're good, we talk to our moms and our dads, or sometimes with our siblings. I'm not as often as good at that. I've noticed that guys talk with their parents a lot less than girls. My, mom, my sister talks to my mom daily. My mom is lucky to hear from me every three weeks. I think of it in terms of the Trinity. I give her one for every God, member of the Godhead, you know? I don't really think that way. I'm not an idiot. Okay, so, um, but as we go through this, you know, I've noticed that we just don't talk as much as guys, but I've noticed that when we get off or we have an interaction with the family, perhaps it's a phone call, perhaps it's the annual family reunion, perhaps it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. These are times when we get together with family. We have reactions afterwards. If you're like me, after I've spent a weekend with either my in-laws or my family, and they can listen to this, we all do this, uh, I would tell them this. We all have that van ride home. It's seven hours. If I go to my parents, it's 15 if I go to Missouri. So there's lots of processing time. And my wife have a, and I have a long conversation about family issues. Because there's things that we see, good and bad, and we both come from fairly functional families that we are processing through. And so this morning, as we look at this idea, families without boundaries are dysfunctional families. I'm just going to tell you my roadmap. It's going to be really simple. It's going to be really clear. It won't even take all that long. And then we're going to go and watch football or do whatever else we do with our Sunday. But before we get started on the rest of that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a family that had terrible boundaries. And we're going to look at him. His name is King David and his extended family, his kids. And we're going to see that wherever we are in our dysfunction in our families, likely your family is not as bad as his, and he is like a hero of the faith. If your family is worse than David's family, see me immediately this week. Second, we are going to look at common boundary problems in families and give you kind of some peg holes to put some of your problems on, some language. And then third, we're just going to talk about how we can resolve them. 
But let's go ahead and dig right in. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11. And we're going to be looking, sort of skimming, uh, telling the story that is found in chapters 11 through chapters 18, eight chapters. I'm not going to read them all, but keep your Bibles open there. Uh, the passage we are looking at is starting on page 247 in the blue Bibles right in front of you. Uh, and we're going to look at King David to start our time together. And what we're going to see is this overarching idea, like we talked about families without boundaries are dysfunctional families. But what I also want you to notice is that family problems are generally passed down from parents to children. Family problems are generally passed down from parents to children. And I have kids three boys, eight, six, and three. And even so, right now, I can already see some of my bad habits and my good habits coming out to bear fruit in the lives of my kids because family problems are passed down from parents to kids. And this is definitely true in the story that we're going to look at this morning with King David. We're going to pick up the story in 2 Kings or 2 Samuel chapter 11. The David epic uh, or the David narratives in Bible is really long. It includes, uh, it starts in 1 Samuel and it goes to 2 Samuel and ends in 1 Kings. So it's like 30, 40 chapters of content or material. And David is one of the most complex and dynamic characters in all of scripture. He does incredibly beautiful, good things filled with integrity and he does incredibly bad things that are incredibly destructive to him, to his nation and to his family. And we're going to pick up with one of the cycles. It begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11 in one of his worst moments. It's also one of his most well-known. And it picks up with David's marital infidelity. And what we're talking about is the story between David and Bathsheba. David was the king of Israel. He was actually the second king, Saul and then David. And for now he has reigned for a little while. And there was a time when his nation went out to war and David stayed home. And it was during the middle of the night, he was having a hard time sleeping. And so he went up to his rooftop. Now, most people didn't have, this wasn't like a city like New York or Chicago that had skyscrapers and you had to be worried about the, the perverts with their peeping, you know, microscopes or whatever, telescopes, binoculars, with their binoculars, you know. This was a time when most people just had a one or two story house Two, if you're rich, and David had a palace that looked over it all. And so he was a, from a vantage point that was very unique. And there was a night when he was supposed to be at war, but he decided to stay home and he couldn't sleep. So he went to his rooftop terrace, which was higher than everywhere else. And he saw nearby the home of one of his inner circle of warriors. It was one of his mighty men. His name was Uriah. Uriah was off at war, but David wasn't in his wife who was extremely beautiful. Sometimes, don't you wish you just had a picture of what these people looked like? Like, what do they think beautiful is? I would like to see it. But Bathsheba was outside, and it was probably 2, 3 a.m. It's the middle of the night, and she is taking a bath. And David sees Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, bathing, and filled with lust, he sends for his officials to get Bathsheba, bring her to him, and he sleeps with her. Now, I want to just give a quick caveat. Bathsheba was not some woman of the night who was loose. She was in taking a bath, because we all should do that every so often. I'm on a real regular schedule of once a week. And so 
She was on her once a week bath. It was the middle of the night. She's not a dark woman of the night or a hussy. She was just bathing. David was probably the only man in the city who had a rooftop terrace that could even see her. So she is not being flaunting herself. She is being discreet. But David, in a place where he should not be at home when his people are at war, his men are at war, in a place that he should not be in the middle of the night, he should be asleep, sees this beautiful woman. He must have really good night vision and sends for her. Sleeps with her. And just a little while longer, Bathsheba sends a message. He sends her back. Apparently he had slept with her and he was good, having satiated that appetite. But he gets a message. The text does not tell us how much longer, but we assume maybe a couple weeks, a couple months, however it longs to take to figure out that you're pregnant. And David finds out that the woman that he slept with, of his friend, one of his champions of war, Uriah, is pregnant. And here's what he does. Remember, (laughs) dysfunction in families? Here's what David, the head of his family, does. He sends for Uriah to bring him back from the uh, battlefront. And he says, drink with me this evening and go home and sleep with your wife. Most men, that would not take a lot of convincing. But Uriah says... I will not do this when my other men that I fight beside sleep in tents away from their spouses. And so he refuses to go to his wife. The next night, David tries to get him even more drunk so his inhibitions are down. And he still refuses. David's express purpose in getting Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba is to cover up his affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. But when Uriah refuses, David concocts a plan to have Uriah murdered It's successful. And David's marital infidelity leads to David murdering his friend, his champion of war. A year goes on, a year in which David does not confess his sins, does not make right what he has done wrong. Have you ever noticed in life you've done something wrong and you know it's wrong, but you have, you're, I'm like this at times. I've done something. I know I should talk to somebody. I know I should make it right. And I've gotten better at this as I got older. But I have a way of convincing myself that what I did wasn't that bad. I have a way of convincing myself that, oh, everybody else does this. And so I don't need to make it right either. So David, who, who knows what that year was like for him? But he's forgotten. But the prophet of the Lord comes to David. His name was Nathan. And he tells him a little story. And he speaks it in such a way that David believes it is true. But it's really just like a little parable. And the story goes something like this. There is a man, a poor man, and he has a sheep. And he loves the sheep and he feeds it and he takes care of it day after day. And he only has one sheep. And his neighbor, who is a farmer and very wealthy, has many sheep. Lots of beautiful sheep. But that neighbor is filled with lust for the sheep that he does not have or covets the sheep that he does not have. And he sends for the the servants to take the sheep, to kill it, and to serve it in a feast for his friends. Nathan turns to David and says, what should happen to that man? And David says, that man, as surely as the Lord lives, should be put to death. And look at what the prophet Nathan says to David. David's the king. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are 
the man. Now, kings generally, when they are confronted, have a way of like chopping heads off or doing stuff like this. And it is to David's credit and a part of his character that we see what he does next. Nathan tells him the consequences of his sin. And in verse 13, David confesses and bows down to the prophet and says, I have sinned against the Lord. It was a year, at least since his sin. And he hadn't made it right up until then. But finally, David turns to the prophet and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan then responds to David, and you can see his response. It continues, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. And this has always been so interesting to me. You are not going to die. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, your son will die. The next stage of David's dysfunction is David loses a child. Nathan declares he is forgiven. He will not die, but he declares the consequences of your sin is your son will die. Now, I want to speak to this for just a second. I don't have much time. I wish I could lecture on this the whole Sunday because I find this interesting. But first of all, I want you to notice that the point of this is not the fact that when we do wrong, God might punish others we love. It'd be easy to think that after looking at this text. That is not true, and I could talk about that a long time, and I'd be more than willing to get together with you about it. The point of this text is that our consequences for our sin are not removed because of confession. Or we could say it another way and say, forgiveness from God does not prevent the harvest of what we sow. The lasting truth or the timeless truth from this passage is that just because we say, I'm sorry, does not mean that the consequences are gone. If I came to you and I broke your arm and afterwards I said, sorry, your arm's still broken. This text presents a picture of God I think that many of us would struggle against. We might think to ourselves, and rightfully so, isn't the punishment against David unfair? David sinned and his son dies and there's a lot happening here and there's all kinds of things within the Old Testament that cause us to feel this way and have concerns. And while I said I won't talk about it this morning, all I will say is it is not consistent with the picture that we have of God through Jesus throughout the entire Bible. And so there are good reasons to think other things are going on than just God saying to David, because you did wrong, I'm going to punish you in the worst way imaginable. I'm going to I'm going to take your son away. That is not what I believe is happening here. The timeless truth in a cult that comes to us in this text, which was written, you know, 3,000 years ago in a culture that is completely unlike ours with, um, with taboos and mores that are completely different than ours, is that consequences for our sin are not removed just because we confess nothing more. But the spiral of David's downfall continues. And in chapter 13, the story picks up and it continues as following. The story ends with this whole, um, the consequences and the, the war is done and the men come home. But the very next narrative that we are shown in 2 Samuel chapter 13 is a sick little episode between David's son and his half sister. 
Just like I said, our culture is so different today. Today we live in a monogamous, monogamous culture. We just have one wife. And I don't know about you, you guys. I'm not talking to the girls. It's a lot to keep up with my one wife. I wouldn't want multiple. That would bring more complexity, which would bring more conflict. But what we see in this polygamous relationship that David has with his multiple wives, that he had a son, Ammon, that was born to him of one wife, and he had another son, Absalom, that was born of another wife, and Absalom shared the same mother of his, as his sister, Tamar. And Ammon falls in love, or we should say lust, or infatuation with his half-sister, Tamar. And he develops a scheme with his cousin, You see how dysfunctional this is? This is why I told you, if you're more dysfunctional than this, see me or a counselor immediately. But Ammon comes up with a plot with his cousin Jonadab to draw Tamar to himself so he can sleep with her. And he rapes his sister, his half-sister. We're told after David's son rapes, his half-sister in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 21, that David heard about it. Look at the text with me. When King David heard about this, about the rape between his son and his daughter, that he was furious. But the text goes on and it couldn't be more clear. He was furious and he did nothing. Nothing. If my son hit my other son really hard and hurt him and I became furious but did nothing, what kind of parent would I be? Not a good one. And so we see that without boundaries, David set no boundaries. He had no discussion. He became angry and withdrawn, but without boundaries, dysfunction always will escalate. Without boundaries, dysfunction escalates. He didn't set boundaries early on with his relationship with Bathsheba. He did not confess and he lost his son. And the very next thing his kids learned was this terrible lust. His lust for another man's wife turned into lust in his son for his half-sister. We read again as we continue in the text that not only does it end with this rape, and it never would, for Tamar has a brother, And the brother does not appreciate her sister being raped and thrown aside like so much dirty laundry. And we are told in verse 22 of chapter 13 that Ammon's brother Absalom never said a word to Ammon. He didn't say a word either good or bad, but he hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Verse 23 continues, and the story continues in a moment, but it tells us that for two years, it gives us the time frame For two years, David is furious, does nothing. For two years, Ammon, or Absalom, lives in hate towards his half-brother Ammon and says nothing to him, either good or bad. We all kind of hate conflict, and I get that. And I get that this conflict is severe and significant. Absalom would be a weird conversation and go to Ammon and say, you know, I didn't really like the way it made me feel or what you did to my sister when you raped her. I get it. That's a terrible conversation. But to avoid any contact, to stew in hatred and to plot what to do about the hatred and all the while have your father do nothing 
It's easy to see why the dysfunction escalated, and it escalates to murder when David's son, Absalom, murders his half-brother, Ammon. He even includes David in the plot. He invites David and all of his sons out to a sheep-sharing ceremony. David says he doesn't want to come. And Absalom is able to urge and convince David to send his sons, especially Ammon, and at the sheep-sharing ceremony, Ammon is killed. David's son, Absalom, his hatred turned to murder. And afterwards, Absalom flees into exile. And to show the continuation of the family dysfunction, he flees into exile and he goes to his grandfather. Can you imagine doing something that would hurt your brother and going to your grandfather and having him give you asylum? And we're told that he goes to his grandfather who is uh, his mother's father, And he lives, he's a king, the king of Geshur, and he lives there for three full years in exile. And finally, he is able, David is consoled about what he's done, and he is able to return. But he has been away for three years. That's two years stewing in hatred against his brother Ammon. That's three years of exile. And now he comes back to live in Jerusalem to be reunited with his father. And his father allows him to return, but he ignores him. David's son, or David ignores his son after his return. We see in 2 Samuel 14, 28, that Absalom lived in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face for two years. For two years. Um, This has been seven years now of dysfunction without discussion. Dysfunction without discussion. And the dysfunction is just continuing to escalate. And finally, after two years, David sees his son, but the, so, the seeds of hatred and bitterness have been far from sown and are, have well taken root. The next step in the story is David's son, Absalom, rebels against his father. He takes his kingdom away and David flees in disgrace. After a period of time, David is able to rally enough of his troops And David was always a great warrior. And they meet in a great battle. And David's uh, army is able to rout Absalom's army. And Absalom gets his hair caught in a tree and he's killed by David's military commander, Joab, even though David expressly forbidden this to happen. And the irony of the story is when David finds out that Absalom is killed, the same son who killed his other son, (laughs) who, who took his kingdom away, It is only at this time where David says, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And he is incredibly grieved. But the irony is when his son was alive, he gave him nothing. And when his son is dead, he grieves for what he has lost. That is a lot of dysfunction. Obviously, most of us, in our families have not experienced something anywhere near so dramatic. But we still have frustration. And it doesn't really matter, you know, if we were to put together a continuum of family dysfunction and I were to put you all in a line based on how dysfunctional each of your families are, I would probably never have anyone ever come back to church, first of all. And then second, it just really wouldn't be that helpful. Because it's not really rating and comparing each other against each other on the levels of our dysfunction. The truth is, 
wherever we are on that continuum, we want for our own sakes and the sakes of our relationships with our family to improve and move towards health. And so when you have those interactions with your family and everything's going great beforehand and afterwards you're a mess emotionally and you can't diagnose why, you need to be able to start to figure and process and work through that stuff. Some of us come from such dysfunctional families that if an outsider were to see how you were to interact, they'd think, how do you ever manage to make it through life at all? And other of us, others of us come from incredible families that everybody looks at and thinks are fantastic and we feel guilt because we're unhappy with the family situation we're in. And wherever you are, and maybe some of you come from just really healthy, awesome families, and that's fantastic. But for the majority of us who have emotions that we need to work with as it relates to our family, I just want to help you do that in the time we have remaining. Since most of us probably don't struggle, you know, with rape, murder, and the type of dysfunction that David's family did, I want to give you some of the common dysfunctions that we have. I don't have it on your note sheet, but I'm going to blaze through these really quick. First, Here are some family issues that you might be struggling with, some of which you may be aware of, some of which you may not. The first, and these all come, the names of them come directly from the book Boundaries, and I'm just going to blast through them. The first is called Catching the Virus. This is when you have interactions with your family of origin to the point where after you've had those interactions, you ruin the relationships around you. This is the husband that has a phone call with his mom and afterwards treats his wife and his kids really bad because he's just angry and frustrated. The second is called, the second dysfunction is called second fiddle. This happens when a couple gets married and it could be that a son gets married to a daughter, a son gets married to someone else, whatever. A man marries a girl. And the man is always comparing the girl against his mother. And the mother is always, oh man, my mom just cooks such great food. And my mom keeps the house so clean. And the the new wife always feels compared to the the woman, the mom. And she always feels like a second fiddle. And I'm just going to tell you that just doesn't create like a great intimate marriage, right? Not physically, not emotionally, not anyway. My mom keeps a spotless house but my wife is a great decorator. I don't even know why I said that. Third is called, may I have my allowance, please. This happens when parents allow their children to be still dependent on them financially. So it doesn't matter if your kids are 18, 21, or 25, however you define adulthood, you know, by when you can smoke legally, when you can drink legally, or when you can rent a car for cheaper. But no matter how you define it, if you're adult, is not independent financially and is relying on you, they haven't passed the threshold into adulthood. Fourth, mom, where are my socks? This is when the child may be financially independent, but life management skills are non-existent. Fifth, three is a crowd. This is one of the most dangerous and destructive. It's called, in the uh, psychological term, is triangulation. This happens in a family unit when person A talks about person B to person C, but never talks to person B. Did you catch that? And this happens all the time. It's called gossip, and it destroys families. And what happens when person B finds out about person A who talked to person C? They're ticked at person A and person C. 
and dysfunction just continues to grow. But generally, person A, person B, doesn't go to person A or person C and talk to it. Talk to them. What do they do? They go to person D. I'm really good at A, B, C, D, you know? Next, who's the child anyhow? This happens in a family unit when the child is the more irresponsible than the, than the parent. This happens on Friday night when the parent is at a bar and they need a designated driver and so they call their kid to bring them home. Who is the child anyhow? And lastly, but I'm your brother. This happens when one sibling is irresponsible and another sibling always has to fill in those gaps. And as they continue to do so, dysfunction will continue to escalate. You know, it occurs to me with all these boundary issues, most of us are aware of them as we are continuing in them, and yet we still do it. Some of us aren't aware of them and need to stop and need to be, you know, diagnose them and stop. But why do we continue to do unhealthy behaviors that we know are unhealthy and are destructive? You know, the three-year-old puts their hand on the stovetop and burns it and learns, hopefully, not to do it again. But when it comes to family issues, it seems like we put our hand on the stove again and again, and we always get burned. It just always happens that way. So why do we do that? It's because family problems are passed down from parent to child, and they often occur generationally, and the cycle just continues. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is how do we break the cycle? Can the cycle be broken? Is there hope? And as a pastor, obviously you know that I will say yes. Absolutely there is hope to break the cycle of boundaryless families and dysfunction. Is it easy? No, it is not. It's incredibly difficult. And so this morning, I'm just going to give you a couple things. You have little bullet points. I'm going to rush through these pretty quick. Because these are not the kind of things I need to develop. You'll know what they are. And I want you to take these things home and think about your family relationships and process it through yourself. They don't need much explanation, but you need to start going through these steps if you have any hope of breaking boundaryless family problems and dysfunction. The first is you need to identify the symptom. For most of us, it's anger and it's jealousy. So when your mom talks about your brother-in-law and you always find yourself being angry or jealous, you just need to diagnose that and be aware of it. Second, you have to identify the conflict. I'm angry, I'm jealous, and it always happens when, I talk, when my mom talks about my brother-in-law. Or maybe it's something completely else for you. I am not jealous of my brother-in-law. Third, identify the need that drives the conflict. Why does it make you feel angry or jealous when... Your mom talks about your brother-in-law. Is it because you don't really feel like you're getting acceptance or approval or love or intimacy from your parents when they always talk about how awesome your brother-in-law is? Fourth, take in and receive the good. I've noticed that when we have dysfunction, it becomes really easy to see nothing but dysfunction. And so if your mother talks about your brother-in-law, it just seems like every interaction with your mom is about how you are not as good as your brother-in-law, but your mom does all kinds of other good things. She bakes you cookies that she knows that you like, just you, and they have little bits of jam in the center, you know, and you love those cookies. Eat them. Take in the good. Your mom does all kinds of incredible things. You need to learn to take in the the good things that she does give. But fifth, you need to learn to say no to the bad. This means you got to have a discussion with your mom. 
You know, mom, when you talk about my brother-in-law, it always makes me feel this way. And I'm not saying my brother-in-law isn't great. He is great. I'm proud of my brother-in-law. I like to hang out with him. We shoot pool. We play ping pong. I love my brother-in-law. He is awesome. He is great. But we've got to find new ways of communicating. Sixth, forgive the aggressor. Forgive the person who's hurt you. Don't hold it against don't hold him it against them any longer. Don't be the kind of person, mom, you always talk about my brother-in-law, so instead of talking to you, I'm just not going to call you except for every three weeks anymore. I have nothing against my mom. I just don't think about calling her but every three weeks. And then seventh, but uh, listen, learn to live in love and freedom, not in guilt. You are free to love. Guilt is not your driving force in love. These seven steps are so critical for us, and we need to sit down and just process through what our family problems are. And the good news is no matter what, you probably won't ever become as dysfunctional as David. But the bad news is, whatever your dysfunction is, it's coloring your whole existence. And so really, when you think about it, this sermon that you're hearing from me is not about something I want from you, but something I want for you. And I want you to experience healthy family relationships and the joy that can come from them. And for so many of us, our family relationships can be nothing more than a bear and a frustration. And the reason we can do all of this and break this cycle is because of the unconditional love of God. I quoted it to you earlier, and I want to refresh that quote. Remember how I talked about in Romans 5, 6, it says, but God loved you while you were still ungodly. If you've got family relationships that are bad, and your mom is always saying, you know, I wouldn't treat you like this if you didn't do this. And the son is thinking to himself, I wouldn't treat my mom like that if my mom did this. Do you see how that's a cycle? And who knows what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? The clean room or the yelling? The the messy room or the yelling? I don't know what came first. But somebody's got to break that cycle. And what we see in Romans 5, 6 is that cosmically, worldwide, touching everything, Jesus broke the cycle of dysfunction and sin. For he entered into our mess when we could do nothing to stop it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He not only died for us, because lots of people die, but he had the power to break the cycle, which was proven in his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus not only has the love and the actions that prove the love, but he has the power to transform our lives. And if you are living in cycles of dysfunction in which you keep thinking about your problems, if so-and-so in my family did this, then I wouldn't do this, then I just want to free you from that cycle. And the only way to do it is Jesus. And for those of you who've already placed your trust in him for salvation, you know the truth of that. And I'm calling you to live in light of it. And for those of you who never have, we'd love to talk with you. We have a great book out in the foyer at our welcome desk called How Good is Good Enough. Take you about an hour to read. You owe yourself that hour to at least consider what God is providing for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And these sermons 
no matter how dry and funny or how interesting they are about the Bible stories, will do you no good if you do not experience Jesus Christ. And so I want you to have great family uh, relationships, but I want you to do that through experiencing the unconditional love of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts to diagnose where we need to change. We are stubborn people, and we refuse to see what we should see. And we ask that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the things that we need to confess and to make right. I pray that you'd give us the power to begin to break the cycles that exist in our families so that we can move towards better relationships with our parents, with our siblings, and our extended families. And that this time, as we continue in worship, I pray that you would orient our hearts and minds to think the thoughts that we should think and to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for the benediction. The benediction is nothing more than a closing prayer of challenge that prays that you might be enabled and empowered to live out what you've just heard and what you've just sung. And so hear the words as you bow with me. Now, go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Hey, have a wonderful Sunday. Enjoy the fall weather.